Next Chapter Podcasts. Hey, welcome back to How I Got Greenlit, the weekly podcast about pursuing your passions within and without the arts and beyond. I'm your host, Alex Collegian, and I'm here to take you on a magical mystery tour inside this week, inside the mind of Mark Guggenheim, legendary screenwriter, showrunner, novelist, video game author, comic book creator and writer. What doesn't the guy do? Oh, sorry. Attorney at law. I'm sure he's working on his uh, PhD in uh, molecular biology right now, and I'd love to see what he comes up with. So far, everything he takes on, he kicks ass with. I'm lucky enough to be working with Mark on something right now, and he's a, a mensch and a very creative guy. The guy's done it all, and even just TV. If you just sliced off just the TV part of the pie, it's almost like a fractal image. You look at the pie, it's another pie. Started on the practice, learned at the the feet of uh, the great David E. Kelly, on the Law and Order with Dick Wolf, uh, on to Jack and Bobby with Greg Berlanti. You know, judging on Mark's work, he's learned from the best, but... Um, my favorite in his ovier is CSI Miami, where, yes, I did ask, do you get to write the David Caruso whipping off the sunglasses and saying the thing over the body right before they cut to the, the Who theme song? Looks like she won't be getting ahead in advertising anytime soon. And yeah! You have to tune in for it later. But I just love that he worked on that show, along with Eli Stone, Flash Forward, Carnival Row, Legends of Tomorrow, Arrow, The Flash, Batwoman, Supergirl. It, it goes on and on. And that's just the TV stuff. And here's the thing I want you to listen for. It's not his talent. That's a part of it. But what I love about this show is you keep asking why, why, how, why, what'd you do? How'd you do it? Who'd you meet? What'd you say? What'd you write? It's his attitude. He's got a positive mental attitude, meaning he's not a cockeyed optimist. He's a mm, hopeful realist. He's confident, but not cocky. He can take the hit, but still know what his value is, what his abilities are. And he just keeps going because this is a tale you, you could see as IMDB, you know, it's as long as a CVS receipt, but that doesn't tell the whole tale. And what you see is as long as those, you know, many produced hours of television and film, there's treble, quadruple, quintuple amount of unproduced stuff that were just farts in the wind. And that's the killer part of this business is the ratio. And sort of either you learn to live with the ratio or you don't and you're out because it sucks and no one's able to beat the ratio. It's the 10,000 hours driving to uh, Santa Monica on a Saturday, on a Friday afternoon to a uh, audition that you didn't get while you're still sitting in the hall because you can hear the claps inside before you. It's the two foot high uh, script pile that you've written just to get to be not embarrassingly bad as a writer. And, you know, when they used to have letters, the pile of rejection letters, he's able to get through that shit, the ghostings and the fucking just bizarre, weird kabuki behavior that's accepted. I mean, yes, good. The Harvey Weinstein bullshit. The, you know, we, I always talk about it with, you know, people in this business of a certain age, the ashtray throwing era, none of that shit's acceptable anymore. So great. And maybe that's because people like Mark Guggenheim are now 
starting to, you know, come into some measure of control of this town. And they came up from a shittier time. So now they don't have to be shitty. They can just be pleasant. They can be professional. They could, hell, they could even be nice. And that's one thing that I really noticed is Mark's a nice guy. People like working with him. That's about all you, you need. A little self-confidence, but not too much. Little A little basic human compassion. Just remember, talent's in there. It's not the top, and it's not the only thing. It's one of the things. And you'll find out, being a showrunner, you got to be good at a dozen things. And you got to be great at like four of them. Anyway, check it out. Mark Guggenheim. Thanks for joining us. This is How I Got Greenlit. I'm Alex Collegian. Enjoy. Hi, uh, welcome back to How I Got Greenlit. I'm your host, Alex Collegian, and I'm joined today by a screenwriter, television producer, comic book writer, novelist, attorney, video game author. Uh, did I miss anything? Uh, you know, I just, I just make it simple on everyone and just say, Jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> this is of course, Mark Guggenheim, uh, who does all that and more and does it well, uh, oh, despite well. his, despite his self-deprecation. Um, thank you for joining us, Mark. No, thanks. Thanks for having me. And thanks for the kind words. Uh, yes, big fan here. Um, it's funny because we know each other off mic, but uh, yes. it's funny. You, you don't. I mean, I don't, maybe some people do. I don't regularly, um, you know, study up on my friends. And read their, no, I don't either. It, I, always, <laughs> I wish I did actually. I wish I like, you know, I, I wish I did my homework on things. Uh, both, <laughs> both my friends and my acquaintances and like, oh, I'm going to pitch an executive. I, I heard that Taylor Swift, whenever she like meets fans, like if, if there's a group of fans that come to meet her, like her team gives her like full dossiers on each of the fans. Yeah. And, oh, hi there. Um, yeah. yeah. And like, I'm like, oh, Happy wow, that, that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> um, you know, that that's a nice way of making it seem personal, at least. Whereas I can barely, I, I have total face blindness, so I, I can't even remember what people um you know, that's a real thing, though. I mean, are you saying that sort of casually or literally? You know, I, I'm saying it casually, but recognizing that I'm undiagnosed. Like, I really am horrible. Like, I, I can, you know, remember, you know, obscure bits of comic book trivia, but I cannot seem to. <laughs> like, I meet someone, it takes me like 20 times meeting them before I actually recognize them. Yeah, me too. I, uh, it, it's 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 like a selective attention thing or something. I I, I look. The yeah. more I talk about it, we're all undiagnosed with something or other, right? I think that's true. You know, that's the true. spectrum Especially in this includes day all of us. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I I know you're from New York. You're from Long Island, yes. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and you went to, to you went to SUNY. You're a product yes. of the SUNY system. Very. Cool. I am. I am. I went to SUNY Albany, uh, which has now been rebranded U Albany. Um, you know, I think they kind of wanted to, you know, create a reputation for themselves apart from the SUNY system, which you know, pros and cons. Totally get it. Um, so in Long Island, was there a theater you'd go to every week or were you like a, you know, blockbuster video kit or even pre-blockbuster, the little brown cases of the neighborhood video store kind of? We had a mix. Like we had, there, there were two sort of strip malls near my house. Um, and one strip mall had a blockbuster and the other had like what you're describing, a, um, the mom and pop. You know, a mom and pop shop. But also yeah. my public library actually had a pretty good video library. In fact, one of my very first jobs, um, like my second job was working after school uh, in the video library uh, component of the public library. Um, so yeah, there were a lot of like, you know, opportunities to get those VHS tapes and whatnot. Um, and there were, you know, there was one, you know, there was one triplex in the neighborhood, eventually like around return of the Jedi, 
uh, we got a second movie theater that I think like was a fourplex. 80, so 83. Yes. So let me guess, was the triplex, was it a beautiful old movie palace that you could see like the wall that they put up in between? <laughs> That's no, what we had. But it, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it was a I giant totally theater do. and they just chopped it into three. <laughs> I, I'm sure that's actually what they did, but like my young eyes <laughs> couldn't appreciate that. But like right, it right. had like, it had like, balconies you know yes like, that you know. yes yes so, so, so it definitely was a throwback yeah, it, it was sure. a serious throwback serious yeah, throwback and i love that and, it was and great. then they'd have the they'd have the cheap theater for two bucks on fridays yep. right the, in yeah the, in the bad with a really yeah. small screen and everything and yeah <laughs> shitty, it, it was great the shitty dog-eared copy of whatever yeah so that that's kind of my remembrance too i think the gen x like it, it was a combination of the rise of the multiplex right yeah and uh and and kind of the mom and pops were dying. The blockbuster was just kind of rising to prominence. Uh, you had the smattering of like dad bought the laser disc, you know, player with the projection screen. If you had like the rich friend who you could go over and watch Jaws or something, you know. Well, you know, the funny thing is my dad to this day, he not past tense, present tense, uh, owns a small mom and pop electronics store. And oh, he, so you got like early we, VHS stuff. We got the that. first Maybe. VCR on our block. Yeah. Um, and he also does a lot of work with law enforcement. And believe it or not, even back then, there was piracy. And oh, yeah. he would bring home, I'm not kidding, like copies of, you know, A New Hope from the FBI. Like, hey, we just confiscated this. Here's a copy. Um, so, like, you know, and that was a, a huge, you know, influence on me, not just Star Wars, but like, you know, we had Superman, the, movie. the review, we had, like just the rewatching, like I, yeah, yeah. to the point where my muscle memory for a lot of these, my sense of memory for a lot of these films is still ingrained with, you know, back in those, back in the day, you know, like it, it was tape, right? So the tape would occasionally get glitchy in certain spots if you wore it out enough as, yeah. as <laughs> me and my brothers did. Yeah. So I still have that sort of sense memory of where the glitches were. In know you know exactly in the tapes, um, and you know these were also these were not pan and scan; these were all four by nine, you know, non letterbox things. To the point where, like, when you know, I, I think when I finally got Star Wars on Laserdisc, I was like, "Oh my god, I forgot that there's like you know." basically 50% of the frame uh, that was missing. Um, yeah. Yeah. You had a square, you had a square yeah, was, uh, uh, Vista vision or whatever that was. That must've been cinema scope or no, it was, I forget. They always have the wide formats, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's funny. I was just watching Ahsoka. They still use anamorphic to stay on brand. Yeah. You know, and, which, which and I, I love that. Actually, you know, one of the things I loved about WandaVision was WandaVision actually for each like segment, not just the type of show they were doing, but like for, you know, when they went out into the proper MCU, they, they kept, they were, they were faithful to the various aspect ratios of, of what they were, you know, of what they were doing. And I'm like, oh, that's really, that's super clever. You know, that's what you want to see is like, oh, kinescope. And they're doing yeah. it like, it's got that weird sort of, uh, photo negative flares and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Totally. I, totally I caught that. that as well. Yeah. I like, Me too. I mean, it's super inside baseball because I don't know people other than filmmakers who really care about aspect ratios, but, um, like, I like the fact that they, they cared enough themselves to put, to put that into the show. Absolutely. But as a guy who still watches Casablanca almost as much as Star Wars, you know? Yeah. And, and what's funny now is like, as we get older, um, our children and the, the generations following, they start to have reverence for the shit that was just technical difficulties now. So on yeah. Instagram, there's filters oh, yeah. that will add waivers and yeah, you know, totally. like that, that dirt that we were like annoyed with. They're like, oh no, it looks cooler, man. You know, yeah. kind of like the way that our music videos would shoot the Super 8 Right. stuff and like oh look at this weird like look and stuff so it's funny uh all the aspect ratios and the different um dead technologies that we almost like revere now as we're entering this bizarre late empire like remember when it was better in the 80s like i didn't think it was better when i was in the 80s i did not think it was better i was like the future will be better you know i think that i i, I think that there's um you know, there's a tendency of every generation to think that they have it the worst. 
you know, um, that's yes. just, that's just part of the For rite sure. of passage and everything. And, <laughs> and the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, the truth of the matter is that like there were elements of the eighties that were better, you know, and there are elements of the eighties that were much, 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 much worse. Yes. And what's um, funny is the fade is the bad. Nobody talks about the evil <laughs> empire and the nuclear missiles and, you know, our, well, you know, the birds are away. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I mean, yeah. that gave me nightmares. Oh no. I mean, you know? like seriously, like I, I don't think people understand just what it was like to like wake up every day with the very real possibility that, you know, this could be the last day on the planet. You That's know? what it is. It's not just, oh, I'm going to die. It's that every living thing in the entire show yeah. is over. That, yeah, and that's that, a lot. That's pretty heady for a 13 year old watching. It uh, really is. It, what it was that really, mini series really that freaked us all out? Uh, um, the day after. And it was, it was a TV after. movie. We have a massive attack against the U.S. at this time. ICBMs. Over 300 missiles inbound now. Either we fired first and they're going to try to hit what's left. They fired first, and we just got our missiles out of the ground in time. You know who directed that? No. Nicholas Meyer. Oh, get out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. he's the best. Yeah. Yeah, Rasa so, Khan. That's right. Even after all these shows and everything, he's still the best, I think. Since Total. Gene Roddenberry. Oh, my God. Well, I, you know, I think, I think that he... You know, look, I think Wrath of Khan is, it's a, it's a perfect film. Like that's, you it's know, so good. I, I just absolutely love it. Um, you know, and I know every line by heart. Yeah. So, um, it, so, so your dad, so was he like in surveillance when he was working like audio? No, stuff no, he, uh, he, he basically, uh, sold and repaired radios and antennas and CBs. Um, and you know, the police department and the FBI, they, they need that stuff. <laughs> they got a lot of that stuff. I mean, he even one time had this guy come in with like a police scanner that he wanted to have unlocked to a, you know, basically like a classified frequency. And my dad called up his friend at the FBI and he's like, so this Russian guy just walked into my store and he wants like access to like the classified thing. I think he's, you know, working for the KGB. Yeah, yeah. Turns out that's exactly what was happening. Wow. Yeah. Got him at the, yeah, that's great. That's yeah. funny. So did you, uh, was he a gearhead? Was he always like tinkering and building things? No, and- no. In fact, like whenever he would bring home some new piece of electronics, it would be me that was, you know, hooking it up and everything. It, it's kind of funny. It's like he, it's a little bit like, you know, we were, we were a, a little bit like the shoemakers kids, you know, who, who didn't have shoes. Like, he, you know, he would bring home electronics and stuff every now and again, but like, you know, uh, I had to hook it up and, you know, sort of keep it, keep it running and everything. Um, so, uh, and, and did that, did you, did you use early like videotape cameras or? Oh yeah. We had my, my brother, uh, I, I'm the oldest of, of three brothers and, and my brothers and I would like, he, you know, we had a camcorder, like one of those big, like over the shoulder, you know, side loading. Did you have the purse or uh, no, it, it was the one piece. It was the, the one piece, side. but like yeah, the yeah. VHS tape, like it wasn't a small, it wasn't a camcorder yes, tape. I know like exactly the one VHS tape. And we yeah. would, we would make movies with it, but we would edit it in literally edit it in the camera. So it's like, Okay, so there's we got this shot. Now we're gonna, you know, go this way, and now we're gonna go this way, and um, and so your brothers now they fought, you're like a showrunner family, yes? We are. It's weird. It's really it's so strange. I, my parents are still trying to figure out what went wrong, um, and I'm like, <laughs> it was that goddamn early VCR. Um, I think it know. was um, pop culture it, overdose. <laughs> it really was. It really, really was. Um, and yeah, so like my brother. Uh, Eric, uh, he's just coming off of doing Magnum PI for CBS and then for NBC. My brother, David, primarily, he, he dabbles in TV every now and again, but he primarily writes features. He's got the man from Jersey, uh, with Mark, Mark Wahlberg coming out from Netflix. Um, you know, he did designated survivor, um, for ABC. So yeah, like it's, it's weird. <laughs> I think it's great. Yeah, I think think it is too. I think it is too. It's just sort of funny, you know, because no one in our family really came from entertainment and, um, you know, so, you know, and it's, you know, we're a middle-class Jewish family from Long Island, you know, to his dying day, my grandfather was like, when are you going to go back to practicing law? 
Um, I was okay. So now you now you're getting me to my next subject. Is so at SUNY, you are you undergrad pre law? Uh, are you getting into it then, or well, what yeah, they didn't. Uh, SUNY Albany actually didn't. I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, and I knew I wanted to go to law school. SUNY Albany didn't have a pre law program, so I was an English major. Um, well, that and, worked out. That's right. Like it, you know, back in those days, if you wanted to go to law school, and there was no pre law track that was you would either do poli sci political science or you would do um english and that's right poli sci didn't really interest me but but english certainly did um so i i did that i in fact i i knew what because i knew i wanted to go to law school like that's why i went to a state university for college i i wanted to be able to save money uh to be able to go if i got into one a private law school and and i did i eventually got into boston university um, so that, nice. that and then you practice there. So that's what I brought did. you to Boston. Okay. That's right. That's right. Boston legal, no pun intended, not your show. Um, um, so, so you're okay. So tell me about Boston. I mean, that was the big city for you yeah. or was are you always a New Yorker in your head? Well, like, you know, look, I love New York. Um, you know, when I was in college, I would like do summer jobs in, you know, you know, in Manhattan, I interned for Marvel comics, for example, like, oh, wow. I, I love Manhattan. They so were in much. the empire state building back then, um, right? Or is that? After no, that? no, they were actually, uh, they were on park Avenue. Um, they were in Park. It was three eighty seven Park Avenue. South. Was that Jim Shooter days? No, it's uh, Tom DeFalco. Okay. okay. Yeah, I had come in like uh, my internship was like I, I I don't think Tom was actually in the EIC job for too long at that point. Um, oh no, actually, it might have been towards the end of his tenure. Actually, um, don't really remember. But um, yeah, that was that was Tom DeFalco, and and it was great. It's great experience, but. Uh, do you still like, have a make mine Marvel button or some fun like swag from the old? I days? do. I've got like, well, it's funny. I, I divide my days, my weeks actually. I did like two days a week in uh, the publicity and marketing department, and I did three days a week in editorial. So I, I still have a bunch of stuff from my publicity and marketing. You know, I got some, I got some swag. They, yeah, no, it, it, it was a great, it was a great gig. Um, but uh did you get comp books did you get discounts or did you yeah. get nothing no, i got nothing what like were that? called make readies so basically the the last thing that um the last step before everything goes off to the printer is essentially it's it's basically the comic but mm -hmm. it's you know it's slightly larger the the you know the sheets of paper aren't are yeah, they're cropped. like the 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 actual pay piece. It's like eleven by seventeen, right? The no, artist it, it wasn't. Or... It was. It wasn't that much bigger than a regular comic. Okay. It was just a little bit bigger because the the margins were were wider and there were no yeah. staples. Um, yeah, yeah. And you know, I mean, I, I also like remember like a bunch of editors like had in their offices like either a rack or like a you know, uh, you know, the a tray. circular the squeaky racks. Yeah, yeah that's great. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, but like, you know, for the most part, it's like, yeah, just getting the make readies, which was great, actually, because you would read stuff like about a month ahead of time, nice. uh, which was nice. Fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's fun. Um, and was the, uh, I know you're obviously you're an avid uh, comic writer to this day. Uh, do you in your collector as well? I mean, last time I, I last time I think we were in a room together was in a comic book store. Actually, oh yeah, that's but, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I'm still very, and I'm still an avid reader too. Um, so I is that when you were collecting? Like, were you drawn there because you were already like a collector? Oh yeah, you, I mean, like, I like that job out. That was like a dream job. For that was a dream job. Yeah. It was a total dream job. Um, yeah, yeah. And and it was like I couldn't believe it. Like it, it was. <laughs> really it was a great summer and yeah. um i yeah i just simply couldn't simply couldn't believe that 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 was you know what my summer was um it was cool. wonderful yeah and so uh you hit boston you do get into law at that point are you are you fired up to do the law or is it driven by your parents your grandparents you're like sort no of i really wanted or? to be a lawyer i i went in to law with with all the young naive quite frankly stupid uh preconceptions about the way the legal system works um and i was i was very you know i was very gung-ho i was the managing editor of the public interest law journal in law school. Like I was, I was, I was hyped. Um, yeah. and you know, uh, the, the problem is, is that, uh, the legal system actually doesn't to the extent it works at all. It does not work, uh, as advertised. Um, and I, I went into civil litigation and 
just the bloom fell off the rose pretty quickly. Um, you know, I mean, look, there's just, a, I mean, a lot of it's like you're working 80, 90 hour weeks. Uh, you have no life. Uh, it's incredibly stressful. Um, but, but really more than that is it's all in service of a system that, you know, just doesn't, you know, really operate on principles of, ju- of justice and fairness. And, you know, that gets old really fast. Um, and I, you know, once I sort of realized, oh, this, like the outcome of a case has far more to do with the size of your war chest than it does the merits of the case or, or the quality of, you know, of the individual attorneys involved, it, it loses a lot of appeal. Um, you know, and, and I was like, I would look at the partners and go, I'm never going to be as good at them as them. Like I had to work very, very hard to be like a good, I, I was a good attorney. I, but I knew like instinctively that I was never going to become a great one. And, you know, there, there was something sort of, you know, slightly soul crushing about feeling like, oh, I'm doing this and I'm working this hard, but I'm never going to be at the pinnacle of my profession. Um, mm-hmm. There were, there were just a lot of reasons to get out basically. So I'm thinking this is with law school, you're like late 20s, early 30s, kind of reaching that like realization. Yes, I was in my fourth, I was in my fifth year of practice when uh, I was 29. And at my firm, the, uh, you could become junior partner, you could go for junior partner at your sixth year. So I was, you know, right there on the precipice. And um, and, and kind of reaching what I would call the Fisher cut bait stage on the legal career. <laughs> like, okay, it's like, right. am I going to stick around and go for partner or am I going to get out now before, you know, before I do turn 30 and before I have a wife, three kids and a mortgage and I can't leave. Right. And, right. um, and, and I had been writing, you know, the part I've sort of skipped over is I had been writing since my third year of, of law school when my brother, Eric, uh, asked me if I would co-write a script or two with him and, I did really get bit by the bug and I really enjoyed it. Um, and I had been taking meetings, you know, out uh, in LA during my vacation time. You know, I, I never vacationed anywhere. I would just go out to Los Angeles and take meetings. Um, and, you know, so I knew and was like, Eric, was, was he out here? Was he, he getting, was already was he out here. Yeah. He, yeah, yeah, he yeah. basically like I was in my third year of law school. He was in his senior year of film school. You know, hmm. we were writing okay. together until he was like, I got to go get a job. Um, you know, so he, he moved on out to LA ahead of me. Um, he was the pioneer of the trailblazer. Um, and then, you know, I was like, you know, I'm, I really am enjoying this writing thing, but if, if I'm going to make a go of it, I, I can't do it from Boston. Um, you know, I'd been, yeah. I'd been stretching things as it were, as it was, you know, um, you know, this is before zoom and everything. You, you really yeah. had to be in LA. You're mailing stuff, you're faxing stuff. Oh my God. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, literally yep. like mailing scripts. Um, you know, so, I mean, this is even like, I wouldn't say this is pre-email, but this is before email was a thing, you know, like yeah. there's AOL it was and obscure. stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was it, exactly. So, yeah. you know, um, so that's like early mid nineties kind of, right? Yeah. It's like, late nineties. Yeah. So like yeah. I moved out on, I'm, I quit my job in January of 2000. Like, I think it was like, I think I left on January 21 or something. And then, uh, March of March 3rd of 2000, I was my flight out because I needed, I needed time to, um, basically, you know, pack a pack up my Boston apartment, you know, and, and prepare for a cross country move. And also, um, I need to get a place in LA. So like between January and March of 2000, I was flying back and forth to, you know, to LA to get my life set up. And then March 3rd was when I had my one way plane ticket. I told you, right? Mark Guggenheim. Uh, there's much more to come. Take a break. Go get a water, do some squat thrusts, some burpees. But while you're doing that, while you're cracking your neck and, uh, and rolling your head and watering the plants, why don't you go and do yourself a favor and check out the archive? Because if you think this was good, you ain't seen nothing yet. We got two seasons of, of goodness, of, of, of nuggets. Here's the good news. There's no middleman here. 
I got it right here. Like, let's step out, step over in the alley, and I'll show you. Uh, you want two of these, three of these, four of those. Uh, we're having a two for one deal. Daddy's got the medicine. Just come by. It's uh, how I got greenlit.com. I think you dig it, especially. And this is one of my favorites. Uh, we don't always talk to the fancy folk. Sometimes we talk to the working man. And uh, Alex Noble, makeup and special effects makeup artist extraordinaire, Alex Noble came by, and he had a lot to tell about the making of the movies. Because for me. Obviously, I love behind-the-scenes stuff. It's not just about, oh, how'd you get the idea, or how did you write that line, or what's the influence of the theme, and what Kurosawa. Um, sometimes people, you know, they just make movies. They're they're co-artists, but they didn't write it. They didn't they didn't start it. They make them. That's what Alex Noble does. You want to get a cleaver to the head? You call this guy. It's Halloween every day with Alex Noble. Check it out. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the really important things that, you know, people people don't understand. And, you know, I mean, I can't speak for every department. I can only speak for, you know, my department. But, like, one of the things that I I always aspire to be is the is the solution provider, not the problem pointer outer. You know, so <laughs> it's like when, I mean, obviously you have to point out certain problems. Like, for instance, you know, okay, hey, listen, uh, we want to get the blood on her face and then we're going to shoot the beauty sequence. Uh, no, no, that's, no, no. You should do the blood last. Blood always lasts. You right. Know? Um, but that's a particular problem that I have no problem pointing at, you know, because it's like that's going to screw up the rest of the day timing wise. Um, but you need to be ready to provide solutions for any possible problem that can come up. So whenever I do talks at the schools or, you know, working with makeup artists that I've worked with before, um, I always tell them, I'm like, you know, always have three solutions for any problem. You know, and it's one of those things where, you know, I've had producers really appreciate the fact that I can think that quickly on my feet and be able to come up with these solutions to problems that they may not have even seen. And make sure you go back, listen to that whole one, because I'll be quizzing on Monday and check them all out. How I got greenleaf.com. Check it out. Now back to Mark Guggenheim. So you you come out your brother are you are you guys always collaborating or sometimes working together sometimes doing solo well, you stuff? know it's it's funny ever since like since he had graduated we stopped collaborating together because you know I was busy practicing law he was busy you know hustling you know and by that you know by that point he had uh, he had sold a couple of movies he was he was working in features primarily um, and uh, you know he was you know he was busy you know, doing that stuff on his own. Um, you know, when I came out, like, like I said, he was working in features and I knew I wanted to work in television. So March was you actually, did. I did. In fact, March was very deliberate. The whole, everything was, was really very planned out. Um, back then there, there was a, a, a more definitive period called staffing season where mm -hmm. in March and April, that's that's when you would get read. That's when you would um, take meetings, and that's when you would get hired, or you were not working for a year. Like that you year. had two yeah, months exactly. to get a job, um, and if you didn't get that job, you were you were doing something else for you know for for Until ten next months. March, you were um, writing more pilots, and uh, yeah, exactly. Did you write a Star Trek spec? What was your spec? I did. What, what you well, have? it's funny. So I did actually do a Star Trek spec because one of the things that I was able to do while I was practicing law was um, Star Trek Voyager, like all the Star Treks, uh, took, um, you know, took pitches. You could go in and pitch. 70,000 light years from Earth. A Federation starship is trying to get home. In the Star Trek tradition, the adventures continue in Star Trek Voyager. That's why I asked. They yeah. were famous for, I think it started with Next Generation. They it would did. take submissions. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about pitches. You would know better than me, but no, I, I, I pitched, believe. I, I actually pitched twice to, to them. Um, didn't sell anything, um, but I decided to turn one into a, a spec uh, 
But the spec that actually like, I mean, you know, like the first spec I wrote by myself without, without my brother, Eric was this romantic comedy that actually like it ultimately sold, but what it was really useful for was getting me indoors uh, and getting me in meetings. Mm -hmm. And it created a lot, it just created a lot of opportunities. And it sort of, that was sort of the proof of concept script for me that said to me, okay, a a feature, it was a feature feature romantic comedy. Um, and you know, and then the, 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 the funny thing is like, I, I moved out, uh, to LA, like thinking, okay, I'll spend the month of March writing my spec. And then in April, hopefully I'm taking meetings and I landed and, uh, my, I had a manager at the time and she's like, yeah, I need this. I need your script, your spec by the end of the week. Um, so I, uh, wrote a, uh, West wing. This was in the middle of season one of, nice. of West wing. Previously on the West wing. Judge Mendoza, I am naming you as my nominee to be the next Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. My name is Sam Seaborn, and I'm the Deputy Communications Director. I'm Josh Lyman, Deputy Chief of Staff. I'm Jack Bartlett. I'm Charles Young. You prefer Charlie, right? I should call you Zoe. And if I can call you Charlie. We've met. So I wrote a West Wing, um, and uh, it's, it's funny, actually, like, I always knew what the B story would be, uh, because back when I was in law school, I read a case involving uh, Antarctica, and it turns out, like, Antarctica is, um, by treaty, divided up in, like, kind of like, a pie, you know, in, in little mm-hmm. pie slices and each. Yeah. Slice based on the, yes. To, the, to the different countries. Chile or. Yeah. Every, like yeah. all sorts yeah. of different countries have them, but there's yeah. one Declared. slice that's unclaimed. So oh. I always knew the B story was going to be Josh Lyman dealing with the one schmuck who went up there and planted his flag and says, I now have a country. <laughs> um, I didn't have an A story until I was driving all my stuff. The movers had come and I was driving all my stuff down to Long Island. Um, uh, at like, you know, two in the morning and at two in the morning, the only people on the highways are these trucks. And I passed this one truck and it, it's got like a bumper sticker that says without us, the country shuts down. And I'm like, oh, that's the A story. Um, because back then NAFTA was a big deal and, and the universal, universal trade agreement or something. I'm like, oh, the Teamsters shut down the country. Um, so that was the A story. And, and I didn't have that A story until I passed that truck. So the road trip. Um, so I wrote that, you know, I wrote that, uh, spec and it, you know, I wrote it in four days and I gave myself a fifth day to polish it. Um, this is in the days of, you know, four act structure versus six act structure. So I was just like, I just need to write an act a day. Um, and you know, did that and, uh, got you know that that was that script got me my first gig but also got me several gigs after nice okay that's pretty daunting too because season one i believe was all written by sorkin right it, so you it really was. had to capture the voice as well as you had story to of- yeah i mean i love sorkin and i i do love the voice and i, I the hard the hard thing was you just had you know few episodes you know, I had no script. I had the pilot script and that's it. I didn't have any scripts. I was videotaping every single episode. So I did have, like, I think when I was writing it, I think like episode seven had just dropped. So I had like seven episodes on my, you know, uh, on, on, yeah, you know, like in, in my your collection. research pool. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I like just sort of worked off of those. Well, because, well, just explain spec. In that case, it was, you're writing a fake episode of an existing show. Right. You don't really do that today. Now you write your own pilot of your own show to show that, right? They don't want you to write, uh, find a hit show now and write a, something that fits into the mold. You're trying to create your own mold every time. Every single time. Yes. Yeah. And, Which is good and bad. It's a I challenge. think it's good and bad. I, I do think I've come around, like there was a period in which I would read anything and now I'm like, no, I'm like everybody else now. I want to read an original. And that's because I want I want to know, like I want to know what that writer's voice is. That is why I'm hiring them. And, and it doesn't have to be just the way they are on the page with dialogue. It could be like, I'm when I'm reading, I, I want to get just a sense of how their brain works, you know? Like, what's the unique way that they, you know, view the world? Um, Like Sorkin, like, just to keep with Sorkin as an example, like everyone talks about his patois, 
But, you know, that's the surface of Sorkin. Underneath Sorkin is a very Capra-esque ability to get at the heart of what it means to be an American, the heart of what it means to be an idealist, um, mm-hmm. you know, like that, that's the, to me, the real engine of Sorkin stuff. And yes, one of the ways he accomplishes that is with some, you know, very sort of fifties screwball comedy esque dialogue, but, you know, I, you know, the, the people who try to ape Sorkin, I, I think they're aping the wrong things. They're not aping, in fact, you know, it's the, cosmetic. It's not, it is it's, cosmetic. Not the, it's, it's not the DNA. It's just the, like the, the window dressing. I, I agree. So I think just to, just to clarify, if I'm understanding you, the voice that we're describing is really the POV of the creator. Yeah. Not so much literally the dialogue. Exactly. Voice, but rather, how are they attacking a subject? Yeah. Are they pro business? Are they anti-business? Are they little guy or whatever it is? Yeah. Sorkin yeah. very much. I think Sork, if you need to sum up Sorkin's thematic, like point of view it's the speech from newsroom yeah uh where yes. uh where the guy says well, america's number one hold on a second you know that right. whole uh famous monologue of jeff uh daniels but um yeah i mean that's and patty chasky you say the same thing i mean the mad as hell thing is really just the, the through line of how he saw the world and human interaction right? yes not oh, totally. necessarily a snappy dialogue that's right yeah i mean that's a very good point so okay so 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 you you you've created a foothold. You've done the classic sort of break in things where your brother's out there. He's like, "Come on, man! There's gold in them Nar Hills," and and you make the big the big the big leap. I mean, was it a crisis of confidence? Were you like, "Fuck! I went to freaking law school. I got loans. What am I doing?" Or was it like, "No, this is, feels right." You know, it's interesting. I was I was sitting on the tarmac at JFK uh, with my one way ticket, um, and. That's when like that's when shit really became real for me. And at this and while I was nervous, I did have this sense of like the hand of fate sort of pushing me a bit. Um it, it felt like the right thing to do. And it was weird. It's the, like kind of the only time I've ever felt that in my life. Um and you know and I guess like I said, this was all sort of very well planned out in the sense that like I knew I wanted to work in TV. I knew I was going to schedule my move to coincide with staffing season. And I estimated that I had about a year's worth of money, you know, a year's worth of savings for food and rent and everything. Like, I mean, part one of the advantages of, of working 90 hours a week is you don't have time to spend your money. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, I actually had built up a pretty nice nest egg because, yeah, like, <laughs> well, what what was I, I mean, I was, I was getting paid, you know, a, a lawyer's salary, which, you know, was, it's funny looking back on it, like it was laughable. It was like, you know, I think my starting salary was $76,000 a year, but, but at, then it was all the money in the world. At the time it really did feel yeah. like all the money in the it world. Went a lot further. <laughs> and, you know, again, it, it goes by, it goes very far if you're not spending it. Yeah. You know? That's, that's funny. So, um, all right. So you come out here, you, you, it's, it does sound like, yeah, very, um, you did it right. You had what the tech bros called a year of runway yes. to, to take off your yes. career, your new career to take off. I, I'm just wondering, so your brothers and features, you wrote a spec feature. What was it like? Was it your manager? Was it reading about the business? Like what gave you the feeling like, you know what? I think the TV route is me. Oh, I just always knew I want to do TV. The, the, the feature, the romantic comedy that came about really by accident almost. I, you know, my manager, um, you know, I was single and I was always, you know, regaling her with stories about my, my dating mishaps. And she's like, you know, when you talk about dating and everything, you're very funny. Um, you know, write a romantic comedy and, and, you know, especially at the time, like, couldn't really do like a, this was before Felicity or before, you know, even something like Grey's Anatomy or Girls. Like if you wanted, if you wanted to write a romantic comedy, it had to be a feature. So, got it. Um, but I, I always knew I wanted to work in TV and I didn't like even feel the need for, you know, to get into features in any real way until like my seventh year in the business. 
Um, yeah, and we'll get into yeah. that. Yes, there is clearly a moment when you're like, hey, wait a second, yeah. I, I can do both. Yes. Or I can do four different media <laughs> that, that require dramatic writing and with my voice and style. Um, so, okay, so you, you're, you're out here and then uh, you do, you know, what seems obvious in retrospect, you write for a legal television show yes. and they look at your CV and they go, wait a second, this guy can write. And he was a practicing lawyer. Get him in here. Yeah, I, I mean, was that something that was very like, um, clear on their side Were they like, yeah, it, you know how to, how a lawyer talks and thinks, it, right. It was, it was the a classic definition of right place, right time. I was, uh, David Kelly uh, was about to launch his fourth show. He had already on the air the practice, Alan McBeal and Chicago Hope. And he was about to launch a fourth show. And he's like, he, he had designs on taking a step back from the practice. It didn't actually turn out that way. But he, he, his vision for season five was, I'm going to take a step back and I want to hire a bunch of first year writers who used to be lawyers. So it was like obnoxious, just yeah. How, and by the way, he was also an attorney first. Yes. Is that why he's done a lot of law shows? He, not only was he also an attorney first, he also practiced in Boston. And uh, as it turns out, and, and this wholly, <laughs> nice. this, this wholly unimpressed him, but we went to the same law school. We graduated from the same law school. <laughs> um, and, and I swear to God, he could really, he didn't care. <laughs> I remember my interview with him is like, he really could give a fuck. Um, that yeah. was completely, uh, completely unimportant. To him. Right. Um, but, uh, I think it did help. Like, I mean, I came in among, you know, like I think two other, there were two other, no, maybe three other first year lawyers, first year writers who used to be lawyers, but I was, I was the only one who had practiced in Boston. So I had, you know, that like, you know, I, I, I knew those courtrooms and I knew, you know, those judges and, and just the way the legal system, you know, operates in, in Boston. Uh, I'm always curious when you meet one of the big, one of the biggies and you could argue that David Kelly is one of the, one of the big guys, right? He's the made men of that world. And what is that like? What is he like? What do you, when you're, is he just a dude that's smart and talented or is it like, I don't know, does he touch a doorknob three times? I mean, Aaron Sorkin certainly has his proclivities. Like what, what, what is Kelly about as a person when you're interviewing with him and meeting him? Well, well, at first I have to say that, um, you know, David, this is David at the height of his powers. Like, I think he's like yeah. a year or two removed at that point from winning in the same year, the best drama Emmy for the practice and the best comedy Emmy for Ally McBeal. So he's like, you oh, know, yeah. he's unstoppable, he's, but, but even more sort of imposing than that was, David was my idol. Um, you know, like I, like I vividly remember watching his first episode of LA law that he has a writing credit on Raiders of the lost bark. And like that made me want to be a writer and it made me want to be a lawyer. And I like devoured every single thing that David wrote. Like, in fact, the first uh, script I ever wrote was with my brother, Eric, we did a spec picket fences Um, so like, yes, David like looms incredibly large. And the funny thing is like, I I guess in a way, like it was good that the meeting started off this way, but I was, I was meeting with Bob Breach who at the time he was the, he was the EP, uh, on the practice and he was kind of like the non writing showrunner in a way. And, you know, David's late to the meeting, which, you know, you know, of course, cause he's busy guy. Um, you know, he, he walks in and he immediately recognizes me. Now, the thing is, David and I had never met. And Bob Reach, like, you know, it was a bit of a dick. Um, like, <laughs> looks over to me, like, with a dagger stare, like, going, <laughs> what the fuck is going on here? And fortunately, I realized that he did, of course, like I know, like I said, he didn't beat me. But a year earlier, he had met my brother, Eric, outside a event that David did in New York for the Museum of Television Radio. And Dave, Eric had introduced himself and everything. Now, here's the thing you have to understand. Eric and I do not look alike <laughs> at all. Um, so I don't know how David made the connection. And I certainly don't know how David remembered one random fan that he met a year prior. But that's the thing about David. His mind is like a steel trap. Um, and that's sort of how the meeting started. And, you know, 
they always say never meet your heroes. Um, I will say I found David to be incredibly lovely, you know, very like very personable, you know, um, and just down to earth, like just a really sweet, nice guy. Um, and, you know, and it was it was easy, you know, for us to chat. Um, you know, we you know, we we talked about maybe we talked about like law stuff and, uh, you know, uh, you know, we just sort of shot the shit as two former attorneys. Nice. Okay. Would you call that your entree into a new world? Or yeah. Would you, is oh my that God. your greenlit moment? Well, is that the, uh, the, funny the president of show business saying, yeah, why don't you come in? I think we got room for one well, more. You know, here's what, here's what's funny. So like the, when, when my agent sent me, sent over, uh, the West wing, um, he sent over to uh, David's company and Pam Wisney, the head of David's company at the time called up and said, um, love this script. This is amazing. We want to meet with him, but unless he has two heads, we're going to hire him. And my manager said, well, we're cutting off the second head right now, which I thought was the right thing to say. Um, But then I had the meeting with David. It seems to go well. And literally nothing happens for like a month. And my agent calls up Pam Wisney and it's like, you know, so Mark Guggenheim and Pam's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we all took it as, yeah, 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 I'll get back to you. But what she actually meant was, yeah, 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 like we're hiring him. Um, and we actually didn't know it until my agent gets a phone call from Business Affairs saying, okay, want to make the deal for Guggenheim. And we were all like, there's a deal to be oh. made. Like, honestly, I, truth be told, like so much time, I think like a good two months passed between the meeting with David and when that call from business affairs came in and, um, like literally, 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 like we all thought it was, you know, it was just not happening. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So then, and you know, it's funny, I, I would ask you, and this is more for like this sort of aspirant younger, uh, writers and, and filmmakers out there. What's going through your, so you have a good meeting, you are walking on air Yes, and you're, and, and I'm, and I'm just like, bit, I've met my idol. I'm good. I'm done. Uh, right. But you're also like, oh, I'm, I'm on my way and uh, you know, yeah. his company likes me and whatever, but then nothing happens. Yes. Are you, are you blaming yourself? No. Are you confused? Are you upset? Are you anxious? Are you just like, well, no. I, uh, I know they like me. Well, they'll get back. Yeah. No, it was, it was more like. You know, you take your shots, you know, and I, it's funny, like very rarely, even today, like very rarely do I take a meeting and I'm like, so anxious about the outcome. Like, I, I really do believe everything sort of happens for a reason. And like, I, I, I did a meeting yesterday that was for a gig that I've been chasing forever. And if I were to get it, it would be spectacular and amazing. But if I don't get it, it means I wasn't meant to get it, you know? Um, and, and did you, did you develop this sort of Blythe attachment or is that just inherent? Do you think? No, I think I've always sort of, believe it or not, I think I've always sort of been that way. Like, you know, I, it, I guess to me, it doesn't feel like a detachment so much as it feels realistic. Like, you know, it's, or maybe it's, it's fatalistic. It's, it's like, you know, no, I think it's healthy. It's, that's the good I, news, I also, but you don't meet a lot of healthy writers. Well, that's, that's true. You know, here's the thing. I, by that point, you know, I had been taking, you know, I've taken so many meetings, you know, even before the practice meeting where like, I know how to take a meeting and I know how to come across reasonably likable. And, and like, I, if, and even your prior career. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, actually, professional yeah. And- I mean, once you've, I always say like, you know, being in court is public speaking where someone is trying to stop you. Um, and, and if you fuck it up, you can get thrown in jail. Well, it, well, if you fuck it, well, you know, <laughs> Jumped of court. Uh, because, I, because I did, you know, a lot of commercial litigation. Um, I had a lot of like, you know, sort of bet what we call bet the company cases where if you lose like at least a hundred people are out of work and, like once you've sort of let, lived with that level of stress and those stakes, everything else does feel kind of small, to be honest with you. And and that would believe it or not, that's actually like 
what would sustain me when I was a lawyer. Like I, I, you know, because I, I realized relatively early on, I realized, okay, I'm not doing this for the rest of my life. I don't know what I'm going to do necessarily, but I'm not going to do this for the rest of my life. And there will be no job I take that is more stressful than this. This is, this is the worst it gets. And I think as a result, I kind of go into every situation, every meeting, like, yeah, it's like, this is, this is nothing compared to practicing law. Um, you know, the, the stakes aren't nearly as high. The pressures nearly aren't as great. So, um, you know, so I, yeah, I'm kind of, it's funny because I'm not like, you know, I'm a very anxious person. I'm on medication, like, like any, like any sensible writer, um, you know, but, but in this respect, I'm kind of, you know, this one respect, maybe the only respect I'm, I'm kind of chill. And then, so you go from the practice, you go into law and order. I mean, you're hitting like all the stations of the cross of like drama, law, like crossover stuff, right? Very, very lucky. So David Kelly, obviously, you know, Titan and then Dick Wolf, Titan, right? What's the stylistic differences? What's the like, how, how do they, how do they run their houses differently? Like what's the difference there? Well, the difference there is in three years, I probably had two meetings with Dick. So, um, I, you know, at the same time, I also worked. Was was he diving off a diving board into his Scrooge McDuck pool? Uh, no. At the time? Hand me a towel. Kid. Yeah. He, I mean, <laughs> like just, you know, he was sort of like the man behind the curtain, you know. Um, uh, and he talks like this, right? He's got that yeah, deep voice. He does. It's, yeah. it's so funny. Like literally like two meetings in three years. And, and they were never alone with him. It was always with the staff, whatever the staff was. Um, but. You know, unlike the practice, I was able to, you know, write and produce my episodes, um, which was great, you know, um, and so that was their first kind of hands on. It was out of the writing room, like, oh, I'm starting to be more of a showrunner. I'm learning sets. I'm learning crews. All this. I was rewriting like um, my this is my, my first year in Law and Order. My second year in the business, I was rewriting freelance scripts. You know, a freelance script would come in and I, you know, my, my boss gave it to me to rewrite. It's my second year in the business. What the hell do I know? Um, but that like, you know, gave me, I had, I had like uh, my, you know, starting my second, third year, I had an office where like I, I was on the first floor and I had a window that like looked out onto this little courtyard and like, I had like the editors on my episodes because we weren't allowed to go into post, but I literally had the editors like surreptitiously pass me cuts like through my little window, um, you know, but yeah, it's like, but again, it's a lot of it was, I think, you know, show running, being a litigator, there's, there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of transferable skills, um, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that I was able to sort of rely upon. I never felt like, I never felt like this was super daunting, you know, because um, it's not. I mean, the truth is, it's like, you know, my motto is. No, it's not. It's not I, I wasn't science, trying to you know? say, oh, gosh, you're scared. Yeah. I just meant you, you're getting out of the writer's room. You're getting. Yeah, I was out actually of, like say, producing, the, you know, whereas the yeah. thing is, when you when you work for David, you, you know that you're not going to do much writing. What you're really there for is to pitch ideas. You're, you're sort of like a story generator, an idea generator, and and there for some research occasionally. Um, and that's all well and good. And he was very nice about like, you can go into set, you can go on set. Like, you know, we, we shot, you know, in Manhattan beach and, you know, so, but like, it's different when you're going on set for someone else's words. Um, you know, especially as a young writer trying to learn your craft. Um, and so, you know, when I went over to law and order, I really went over, they, they sort of, I like to say that they poached me because that's kind of what happened. Um, but like I, they were able to poach me because what they were offering was you're going to get an opportunity to actually really do this thing. So it's like, do you want to work with your idol, but not really do the thing that you came out to Los Angeles to do? Or do you want to like really do it? Um, and right. get your hands dirty. Yeah. Um, and it's also funny cause it's kind of the alpha and omega of legal dramas, right? You have the David Kelly, very iconoclastic yes. specific, uh, emotional and also law order, law and order process yep. plot, very little character. It's almost the, well, the two sides of it. And, yeah. and also only an a story. Like that's and, right. And only I an a story. Tell yeah. you, when there is like, is a special form of hell 
in when you're writing TV and you've got to fill up, and this was like, I think back when it was like 50 minute episodes, like you have to fill up 50 minutes with a single story. You can't cut, there's no, there's no subplot. There's no soap opera element. There's nothing to cut away to. You've got to like, so you know, breaking a law. And There's order, no pizza man scene in Hill Street Blues. You just right. got. You got to like just like. <laughs> you got to catch the crook and you, have the red herring you and have flip the around and, yeah. it, it, and literally like I mean that's boot camp for breaking story. You know, it, it just is, and it's like it, it's like figuring out like you know twenty Rubik's cubes that like all resolve into chess pieces that now have to get put on a three dimensional board like. You yeah, know. almost an Agatha Christie, yeah, uh, you know, methodology, right? Yeah, the plot uh, and the everything has to fit and the puzzle pieces. Yeah, yeah, like we would all yeah, go absolutely. home exhausted just because the mental, it, it was hard. It was like you know, it, it was very, very hard, but but rewarding, you know. Um, and and you really felt like you could, you could do like a really quality episode of television. And you're not a babe in the woods, right? You're not a wonderkin. Like, no, you're an adult. No, like, you're, you're 30 plus. Yeah. You've been around. You had a real ass job. You're coming in, you know, more as a young adult, like seeing things for what they are. Uh, that's another commonality in Hollywood. Young people come here. And it's not so much now. So thank God for the millennials for not accepting the abuse we did. Yes. But I mean, we could talk about oh that God. for five hours, right? The 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 flung ashtray era. I'm going to call it officially over, yes. right? But we came up in that. Not necessarily you, because it sounds like again you came in as a grown ass man, and people took you, respected you because of your writing. But you know. I came in with the fucking PAs and like abuse. Oh, like I was no, that I was. Uh, believe me, I there was plenty of abuse going on um, when I was coming up. <laughs> I worked on a show called CSI Miami, and the show. Hey, I was getting there. The show I was getting there. That, that was show my next question. <laughs> was totally abusive. I mean, just like a bully who would literally like we we gather as a staff, and she would like it. It was kind of like instead of like everyone was afraid to pitch because she would just like be like, bang, 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 bang. Like you just, you know, around the room. And I will say by that point, I, I, I was like, yeah, I don't need this. Like I, I don't need this in my life. So, so CSI is your last sort of journeyman writers, you know, your producer, what do you like? Co-exec uh, I'm by a then, supervising or? producer by that point. Okay. And so I, you're moving up the rank. You're, you're, a, you're, a, you're a captain in the army. You've got some responsibility now. Yeah. And actually I've got yeah. my, my oldest had just been born. Um, like, and it's the only oh, gig I'd ever, on. yeah, the, well, the only, <laughs> the only, it's the only gig I ever took for the money because I didn't, I didn't want the gig. Um, but I, you know, because I, why not a fan of the show, just not, not a fan of the show, vibe, like, just not yeah. a fan of the show. I, I had gotten out of procedurals. I didn't want to go back into one. Um, okay. you know, okay. um, and I, yeah, I didn't like the writing, quite frankly. Um, I just, mm -hmm. I didn't think the writing was very good. Um, and when I was working on the show, I was embarrassed to tell people that I was on it. Um, and, <laughs> you know, being very honest. Um, but like, I, it, it was such an abusive environment um, that I lasted four months. And I, like, she came into my office one day, like, and basically like, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, I, she had like a psychotic break. And, um, like was, was accusing me of things that her number two was doing. And I'm like, talk to your number two. That's, that's not me. You know, um, that's, right. you want to talk to her, um, you know, and, it, and I just came home, I, I went home and, uh, my wife was like, you don't need this. Like you, you don't. And I'm like, I'm a brand new dad. I'm like, well, Brandon, Dad, I feel like I do need this, you know. But but she was she was right. There's diapers. We got diaper issues. Yeah, yeah but, but no. she was right. That's a, and that's a good partnership, by the way. Yes. That's something that people don't talk about: supportive yeah. partners in a chaotic business. Well, well okay? my wife is also a, a writer, and um, she, you know, she's now also we we became showrunners around the same time and everything. Like, oh, yeah, Jesus. showrunner wife, um, showrunner brother. So she knew the territory <laughs> and she knew the personalities and. Okay. Um, but I was terrified. So I, I, I quit that job. Uh, like m a month later, I got a job on a show called Injustice, which was created by- Wait, wait, don't don't leave Sorry. there yet. I have two questions. Okay. David Caruso's story and what? give me one of your uh, your uh, sunglass one-liners that you wrote for that show. You know, it's funny. I, I don't remember. I only like, <laughs> I, you know, I, I was only there for four months. So I only like wrote two episodes. Um, I, 
I, I will Come tell on, you this. I will tell you this. <laughs> Looks like he's, he'll be hanging around. Well, you're not allowed to script when he takes the glasses off or puts them on. That's left to David. Is he just No, no, you you are told Oh, he like, actually he, improvises he, those? Well, yes. I mean, like in fact, you're specifically told like you can write that line. And then leave it blank. You can write that line, but do don't you dare put in the stage direction. You know, <laughs> he whips his sunglasses off. You do not do that. You do not do so, that. So you get to write. Okay, so you get to write the one, the pun. Yeah, because it's always like. But bear in mind, I had guy, I had spent three years writing. Looks like he lost his head. I had spent three years writing puns for Jerry Orbach, which was yeah, quite frankly, just yes, more enjoyable. Jerry Orbach. <laughs> Tell me a Jerry Erbach story. What was he uh, like? He was great. He was so delightful. I mean, like yeah, during during breaks, he would just regale you with stories. But like the thing from the olden yeah. days, right? He was friends with like and, James and tell Dean you and jokes stuff, and stuff. It? You know, like nice. you know, that's all you want. That's all you want. The thing is, he would always try to like he would always try to see if he could one up the the pun at the end of, of the cold open, and yeah, if he couldn't, that was like a real badge of honor. You know, like okay, like if if Jerry goes like. Okay, that's good. Like, you know, you know you've done a good day's work. <laughs> Thanks again for listening, everybody. And as always, please like, subscribe, interact with this thing. Thumbs up, stars, God forbid, an actual comment. Reach out and touch us at uh, How I Got Greenlit on TikTok, uh, Instagram, Twitter, and at How I Got Greenlit at gmail as well as our website howigotgreenlit.com as always thanks for playing i'm alex collegian and this is how i got greenlit next chapter podcasts